0: This Snyder, and this is Bill McKibben. And since I got Bill McKibben into this, uh, I'll open. Uh, As it happens, um, uh, although I normally live in uh, California, and uh, I don't travel to the East Coast as much as I used to, I did have business bringing me here to New York City this week, And uh, Pamela Pierce and the Pen Club got wind of it and called me up at home and uh, asked me would I be interested in doing some kind of a discussion, conversation, exploration of ideas, Uh, probably related to my recent book, The Practice of the Wild, a collection of prose essays. And uh, if so, who would I like to do it with, together with, as a conversation? Uh, It didn't take me more than a few moments, thinking about that, to suggest Bill McKibben. Uh, Bill McKibben and I had never met, but we had corresponded a little bit. And uh, a year and a half ago, The End of Nature came out, is that about Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Which I had also read in The New Yorker, uh, the sections that came out in The New Yorker prior to that. I have a friend up on San Juan Ridge in the Sierra Nevada foothills, which is a pretty forested backcountry area without electrical connections or grids and only dirt roads, but uh, I have a friend who sticks uh, clippings from the New Yorker in my mailbox. Whenever he sees something that he thinks I ought to look at, I'm very grateful for that. And for his editing, I mean. (laughs) And... uh, uh, I was very pleased. I was very delighted to uh, to get into Bill's piece. So I suggested um, uh, that possibly Bill McKibben might be willing to come down here from uh, New York State, uh, in the Adirondacks where he lives, and join in. Uh, and suggested the, the rough title for this conversation to be "Nature Dead, Nature Alive," uh, playing with those. Uh, the angles uh, uh, that are implicit that are possible that the imagination might reach for in uh, the title of his book, The End of Nature, and then again if you read it, which I hope you have uh, in the actual subject matter of it, uh, and Nature Alive because who's dead and who's alive and who knows? Um, so that's that's where we're starting. Is uh, Someplace like that. Here we are, and the format is roughly going to be: I'm going to speak what's on my mind in these uh, along these lines for some minutes, and Bill will speak what's on his mind, and then we may ask each other a few questions, and then we'll open up, open it up to you, the audience. Uh, and it may or it may not connect. Who knows? As we as we go through this. Quite a few years ago, uh, in some kind of an interview, uh, I was asked, this must be 20 years ago now, I was asked, uh, and we were talking then as well as now, about environmental problems uh, and what might possibly be the fate of the planet. Uh, Someone asked me, what is it do you fear most? most?" And my uh, instant response, which I had not calculated, uh, and it surprised me when I came out because I thought I had other things on my mind as well. My instant response was uh, the the reduction of genetic diversity. Uh, more than anything else, was what I feared. Uh, and then I had to step back and uh, ask myself exactly, you know, what did I mean by that? Uh, in softer terms, in more accessible terms, and why? Uh, it means, of course, loss of species, loss of beings, uh, not only large, interesting vertebrates like elephants, lions, uh, wolves, grizzly bears, orangutans, mountain gorillas, uh, and uh, the long list of uh, uh, vertebrate mammals that we that most of us by now probably are somewhat aware of that uh, will quite possibly be relegated to surviving in zoos or in wilderness parks by a century from now. The end of large vertebrate evolution, Michael Soleil, the conservation biologist, says, is at hand, Uh, unless something really radically different happens in the world than anything that we would predict based on current evidence. Uh, but more than uh, the obvious creatures, uh, many far less obvious and maybe far less fetching or uh, winsome creatures are out there also uh, deeply endangered, and indeed so are uh, an awful lot of plants, plant species. In, in fact, you know, to refine the discussion, as I learned to do, uh, A little farther down the line. Uh, What is endangered, we should say, is not just individual species, individual organisms or individual species of organisms, but habitats, communities, whole communities. We're accustomed to thinking that way now uh, more and more. The rainforest community, uh, the wet tropical rainforest, the dry tropical rainforest. Uh, as a community, the ancient forest communities of the Pacific Northwest. And within those communities are dozens of big critters, thousands of smaller critters, and tens of thousands of little tiny ones, and millions of microorganisms, billions, all of which belong to the the specifics of that community. Um... If we talk about environmental damage and want to practice triage, uh, that is to say, letting those that will survive, survive, uh, writing off those that are going to become extinct, and um, going with that which can be saved, uh, you have to look at systems. And by systems, what systems means, it comes down to habitat. So what I have uh, uh, come to in my my own vows, my own activist vows, uh, uh, is the position that I say to myself is that what my work is, is to save habitat. Uh, because habitat saves systems and systems save species. Habitat means real places of real types. And uh, The importance of of species, the the importance of living beings and their systems, to go back to triage for a second, is is in a sense this. There are environmental insults like gigantic strip mines or huge open pit mines such as are being done right now in the Great Basin in Nevada uh, for gold, uh, for microscopic gold flecks in gold-bearing gravels, where they have to take out two tons of gold to get two cents, uh, two tons of gravel to get two cents worth of gold, and they still find it profitable because they do it on such a vast scale. Uh, however horrifying, uh, or well, horrifying too much. Uh, however unsettling, <laughs> seeing such a giant open pit is, and it won't be filled in. Believe me, they'll leave it. Um, nonetheless, in geological time, it will heal itself. Uh, A number of other things that are happening uh, out there to the world that we may dislike, uh, such as paving over the prime agricultural lands of the Great Central Valley or any kind of paving over of soils here or there uh, by suburban development all over the planet or all over the United States, are um, reversible uh, in some kind of time frame. And a certain certain numbers, certain sets of um, plant communities or forest communities in which the soils have not been too badly disturbed will also come back. But a species once lost is lost forever. Uh, So that is a kind of of bottom-line insult uh, to the integrity of the planet, is loss of species. Uh, Understanding it that way, this is irreversible. This is irresponsible. This is a sad loss of one of the comrades with whom we have been traveling this organic evolutionary path uh, for all these millions of years, them not that much different from us. Uh, That is uh, a sorrow that strikes to the heart. Uh, And you don't even have to invoke some... Uh, complicated self-interest reasons for arguing that things shouldn't become extinct, like saying, well, maybe you can make life-saving medicines out of them, uh, as they say about Amazon plant species. Maybe there's all kinds of medicines down there we haven't found yet. Well, that may well be true. But even if it wasn't true, uh, there's no reason to destroy it, except economic reasons. So saving habitat Uh, has become, uh, for me, a way I describe what my work is, uh, a a simple and comprehensible exercise uh, in its own way. Uh, The kind of habitat that I put myself to is, as it works out, the kind of thing that's in my own backyard. And that sort of thing which I know most about because it is intimate to me, because I walk in it regularly, because I live with it, and because I pick up the gossip about how it works from all of the knowledgeable people around, like the Forest Service biologists and the Forest Service uh, timber managers and so forth, or the BLM people with whom I spend a lot of time. So I'm talking about working on ancient forests and saving wildlife corridors to run between high country ancient forest stands and low country ancient forest stands so that the uh, critters that need that kind of woods, like lions, like cougars, Uh, and like fishers, uh, which are a large-sized weasel, and so forth. I'll have a place to move back and forth. Spotted owls, about which a lot of you heard last summer in the newspaper, are interesting little critters, to be sure, and they have a strange call. It sounds more like a barking dog. Uh, I've learned to go out and bark in the woods at night. Oh, I can't do it. (laughs) I'd be ashamed. (laughs) But... uh, uh, you try it, and you see if you can get one of them to call back at you, and then you, then you can um, file an appeal with your local forest <laughs> service <and laughs> over their planned timber cuts, saying, I think there's spotted owls in there. Uh, but y- as you understand, I'm sure, the issue is not just spotted owls. They, they're just a, um, they're a symbol, a sign, for a whole much larger and much richer little uh, community of creatures, big community of creatures. At any rate, what I'm doing is working on forestry, on forest habitat issues, riparian, which is to say river bottoms, coming out of the Sierra. And I've been spending time and learning about waterfowl um, uh, wetlands down in the Great Central Valley. And um, there's some good news in all of this about what can be done. The Forest Service, the U.S. Forest Service, is showing signs of being turned around a little bit. Citizens uh, groups uh, are coming forward in, in increasingly creative ways. Outfits like uh, the, the Land Conservancy and the Trust for Public Land, the Nature Conservancy, and the Trust for Public Land, are playing interesting hardball with BLM, Fish and Wildlife, private owners, to the end to the end of saving. 2,000 acres of uh, wildlife habitat, so that the ducks can have a place to land when they come down from the Arctic in the fall. Those are the very concrete things that occupy a lot of my time. Having, you know, said what are the larger reasons for me behind that? Example: the BLM manager in all of Central California, uh, Bureau of Land Management, uh, the uh, land, the public lands agency that owns 80% of Nevada, 80% of Utah, and 30% of California. Uh, The other big land agency, of course, is the US Forest Service, but not as many people know about the Bureau of Land Management. The BLM uh, manager was telling me, uh, Dean Swickard, uh, uh, how he's doing a wonderful little land shuffle. He says, we have a few hundred acres over near Roseville, California, of grassy serpentine ridge, which I cannot count as prime habitat for anything at the moment. So we're selling that to Hewlett Packard for a few million, because Hewlett Packard is is moving its uh, its operations from Silicon Valley up to the Sierra Foothills. He so says now we can take that um, that round of million dollars, that several million dollars. And we're going to buy out some rice farmers down in the Kasumnes, uh River uh, corridor uh, in the marshes of the valley. We'll buy them out, and we'll hook their several thousand acres onto some. Uh, wetlands we already own, and we'll reconvert it all to waterfowl marsh he says now that 's a good use of the money, so they 're doing things like that, uh, playing playing with uh, scattered chips of public land and uh, trading and dealing with them, and then blocking out other chips of public land into waterfowl habitat. what is that What is that for? The great Central Valley of California the largest flyway in the world in the la- over the last 15,000 years. In the post-Ice Age world, the largest of all flyways, the largest number of waterfowl perhaps the Earth has ever seen were coming down that flyway and settling by the billions into the vast wetlands of the Great Central Valley every winter, and then again nesting in the enormous expanses of the Arctic. of the Sacramento Valley wetlands have been converted to agriculture. Only 6% is left. We're trying to block out a million acres. We figure that they need at least a million acres of wetland to be able to hang on. Even so, in the last 10 years, 40% of the waterfowl flyway numbers is gone. It's gone down by 40% in the last 10 years. We're making deals with big, large-scale rice farmers, and bean farmers, the big growers, 2,000 acre, 4,000 acre, 6,000 acre guys, uh, who go into a land conservancy contract uh, and agree to reflood their lands after the harvest and to do nothing that will interfere with the geese and the ducks and the cranes, and they are getting off on it. They are enjoying letting their agricultural lands go into wintertime marsh for waterfowl habitat, and they make a deal for it, a contract with the uh, a contract with Fish and Wildlife and a contract with BLM. These are creative uh, and challenging uh, exercises between the private the public sectors that are hopeful in that they're real, they're practical, they're happening, and people uh, who once start doing it love doing it. Even if they're big corporation farmers, they begin to love doing it. That's my concrete actual work in the world uh, a lot of the time right now besides teaching and writing my writing uh, goes into these areas too uh, I guess I went into all of that and I'll bring this to a close uh, I guess I went into all of that because I like to back, back my theories and my uh, mystical visionary intuitions uh, with some kind of uh, hard and pragmatic action and learning how to make it work uh, is part of the pleasure of life I don't have any illusions uh, that the larger inertia of industrial, late 20th century capitalist, decadent socialist civilization uh, is going to be slowed down or diverted much by that kind of thing. Uh, One can always take solace, though, in the thought of helping provide a home for a few million actual ducks. Real, real people. Uh, uh, even though, you know, their future is still in question, as is, in a sense, all of our future is still in question. Um, the larger scale planetary issues are all out there. Part of the agenda of our talk this evening is that underlies it, and we'll come to it later. Is possibly, why are we as writers doing this? Is this our territory? Uh, is this something that writers can do? Is this something that writers shouldn't do? Uh, Social conscience, we know all about in the history of 19th and 20th century uh, Uh avant-garde intellectual and literary activism. Everybody was supposed to be socially conscious and uh, do good things. But naturally conscious, natural conscience, or whatever it is, ecosystem conscience, is maybe a new thing. People tiptoe around it. Is it sentimental? Is it romantic? Is it nineteenth century? Is it escapist? You know. Here's a question. What is reality? Is reality the urban gritty industrial world? Or is reality mountains and rivers? Or both? Or how? I'll leave it at that and turn it over to Bill McKibben now.
1: I want to say first of all, how pleased I am to to be here and that Gary asked me to come down and join him here. We'll talk a little more a little bit later about, I think, about um, writing and and nature, but I would just say that in the beginning that for me, um, while I guess my my involvement with the environment first grew out of just my love of the outdoors and of hiking and climbing and and whatever else, um, I think that I've been incredibly lucky to have been alive at a period of time when, though the earth is under enormous stress, um, a great number of very, very talented writers um, and other artists have, have begun to, to rise um, to explain it and to defend it, and for me in the last um, ten years, three people in particular have, have shaped my view of the world um, and understanding of it. One is Edward Abbey, um, one is Wendell Berry, and, and one is Gary Snyder. And each of these have given me something different to think about, the, the kind of um, different terrain and different approach, the the, the sort of starkness of, of the desert and the of the individual encounter with it that you find in, in Edward Abbey, um, the sort of stewardship of... of of settled lands and of, and of agriculture that you find in Wendell Berry. Um, and, and the, the wonderful, um, magic sense of, of community, tribal community at work, um, in, in the areas of the Pacific Northwest and Northern California that I've gotten an enormous amount of, um, Gary's work, in a, in a few weeks you'll be able to read more all about this because I have a long piece in the New York Review of Books about him that was supposed to have come out by now, but, but hasn't quite. But but will soon. Um, so, I everything I say is in some way colored by um by by reading a few people. One of the most important of whom is sitting next to me. Um, I want to begin by saying that it's. You know, there's a temptation in every—I mean, every age has so far succumbed to the temptation to be millennialist and to think of itself at the, as at the end of something. Or every age that I know about, and this is a temptation to be avoided, um, um, in part because you have to. You know, in 25 years, everyone says, "Well, what happened?" You know, and, and, and we're still here. Um, um, I called the book I wrote. Um, the end of nature, not because I think the world is coming to an end or that our species is coming to an end, but because I think that we do live in an absolute watershed time when environmental alteration and damage of the sort that we're used to thinking about is changing very quickly. Um, we're used to the idea that, that humans alter nature. I mean, we have to in order to survive, not being you know, particularly well-equipped, not being strong enough or hairy enough or swift enough um, to live like some other creatures do. We've always had to make alterations of some sort in the world around us, and it would be as crazy to, to sort of beat our breast about that as it would be to, to yell at beavers for building dams. Um, always outside the areas that we've been altering, though, there have been other areas where, where at least to some degree, um, we haven't affected um, other species, and other systems, where they've gone on, um, and even in the areas that we've altered, as as Gary's been saying in the last few minutes, um, not all of what we've done is is irreversible or, or irrevocable, um, and much of it can be can be reclaimed and turned to good use. If for for him the bottom line is habitat, for me I think the bottom line is probably alterations of some of the fundamental physical processes in the world around us. The thing that concerns me most is the is the global warming and the greenhouse effect. Um, and I won't go into the technical parts of it here because I'm sure that most of you are acquainted with them. Um, suffice it to say that this is not like pollution that we're used to dealing with. It's not the result of something going wrong you know it's not that someone forgot to put the the right filter on the factory smokestack or was too cheap to to tune their car engine correctly or whatever um um or dealt unwisely with farmland or, or something like that um, this basically is a case of things going more or less the way that they're supposed to just on much too grand a scale When you burn a gallon of gasoline, which weighs about eight pounds, you release about five and a half pounds of carbon in the form of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. This carbon dioxide, because of its molecular structure, traps heat that would otherwise go back out to space. By the middle of the next century, we will have doubled the concentration of carbon dioxide, of CO2 in the atmosphere from what it was before the Industrial Revolution. Most scientific estimates at the moment indicate that this will increase the temperature about somewhere in the order of 4 or 5 degrees Fahrenheit by the middle of the next century, the global average temperature somewhat more um, as you move north from the equator. Um, We don't know for sure that this is going to happen, but we have a pretty good idea. It is, and the circumstantial evidence is beginning to mount. The the six warmest years on record were all in the 1980s until 1990, which surpassed them and became the warmest, um, year that we know about um, at least in human history um, and for me the reason that this is the bottom line I think is because it has the potential indeed the probability of undercutting every other thing that we could possibly do um, to to fix or, or change our ways for instance um, um, waterfowl Need as Gary has explained someplace wet. to That's why they're called waterfowl. Um, and and um, in 1988, which was the hottest summer we know on record, um, most of the wet places that that a lot of ducks head for in the in the in southern Canada and in the Dakotas, most of these prairie potholes that we know about dried up because it was so hot. The ones that hadn't been filled in with irresponsible farming or whatever else. Um, as a result, an enormous percentage of the ducks who got there um, couldn't um, couldn't nest, died in place because of diseases <laughs> spread in warm and shallow water, um, died from the higher concentrations of pesticides that, that accumulated in these shallower um, bodies of water. Another example, I mean, we, we have this idea that we have set aside... Um, Wilderness refuges for various creatures, be they grizzly bear or or ducks or anything else. Um, Grizzly bears live in Yellowstone Park not because they understand that it has been set aside or because they realize that they are an important part of the tourist economy or whatever. They live there because it is the right flora and fauna for them to live there. And if you raise the temperature a few degrees, every degree. Fahrenheit that you raise the temperature moves a vegetation zone about forty or fifty miles north. That means that if you raise the temperature four or five degrees, grizzly bears are going to want to live um, someplace I don't know, sort of north of Butte. Um, they're not going to get there. I mean, they have to cross three interstates, field after field, whatever. Um, the 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 species the the, the prognosis for species extinction. Um, from from global warming by, by some estimates, is at least as great as a major ice age and, and perhaps worse. Um, that is to say, we can save we can, we can save an awful lot of things. Um, we can save the rainforest and we can save waterfowl habitat and we can save old growth. Um, but um, if we continue um, with the process, of altering the very fundamental forces of climate, um, which of course control things like rainfall and evaporation and everything else, um, then we run a very great risk um, of making sure that those savings are temporary at best. So for me, this is a bottom line issue not only in physical terms, not only because it's going to disrupt species, not only because it's going to raise the sea level. Um, It's not going to raise the sea level 100 feet, at least not right away. We're not going to flood out Greenwich Village. But even a rise of 2 or 3 feet, which is about in line with what most scientists expect, will wipe out about half the coastal marshes around the world, which are the centerpiece of maritime genetic diversity. Um, Not only is it going to make farming incredibly difficult, um, um, as we saw in 1988 when we saw... Crop yields in this country fall 20 or 30 or percent or more. Um, not only is it going to do all these physical things, and we could talk about these at great length, and and people have, I also think it has kind of bottom line philosophical implications too. Because now, as this happens, and it's going to happen not in our you know, children's lifetime or our grandchildren's lifetime, but in the lifetimes of most of us in this room, I mean, it may already, and many scientists believe, is already happening. Um, It's going to have, I think, profound philosophical effects, too. We're used to the idea that, that no matter how badly we screw up some places, um, no matter what we do to New York City or New Jersey or, or, or whatever else, that there are other places, wildernesses, that we've set aside under federal statute to be untrammeled by man, um, that, that they will be, you know, forever violated, that there'll be no place um, um, apart from our influence. Um, now, I mean, I mean, if you're camped at the North Pole in, in 50 years and it's 20 degrees below zero out, well, that's cold, but without our interference in climatic processes, it might well be 40 degrees below zero out, and if that's the case, then you're standing in the, you know, the sort of philosophical equivalent of a heated room, which changes um, the meaning of that. It doesn't necessarily change it in a horrible way, or it needn't it, it it's not necessarily bad for people to begin to realize that they're part of the natural world too um, if we'd come to this realization a lot sooner or if we hadn't forgotten what in fact people knew for a very long time, we'd be a lot better off because of course, in many ways we 're not separate from nature um, we're part of it we're answerable to it um, The difference is that we've come to this, um, position, um, without thinking about it, and we've come to it in an utterly destructive and slovenly way, um, where we, instead of, you know, walking silently and appreciatively through all the, the rooms of this great mansion that we inhabit, instead we're just sort of tromping through with with muddy boots and breaking the furniture and and you know setting fire to corners and 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 whatever else um that's the that's the very for me the kind of very bad news and 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 hard news and for me the the bottom line um maybe it would be more encouraging sort of to talk a little bit about as we you know as we're going along um how it is that that humans might, at this late date, try to become involved in some sort of better way with the world around them. Um, And um, I think what the kinds of things that Gary's talking about are very, very important, but I think they're only possible if you begin with some um, love and affection the natural world around us, and that's a love and affection that, by and large, um, has, or in large part, has has deserted us, that we no longer, as a culture and a society, and as great numbers of individuals, feel. Um, even more than the kind of reclamation work and things that's going on, I mean, I think that the task of human beings in the immediate future is going to be to learn very quickly how to limit ourselves, um, how not to continue. On the sort of mindless curve of both economic and population growth, that's gotten us into the situation that we're in. This limiting uh, could be a very human—I mean, a very sort of noble human task. I mean, we're we're the one creature on Earth capable of this kind of self-limitation, sort of short of crashing our population. Um, and and we've been instructed by every religious tradition that I know about and, and most philosophical traditions that I can think of, that this is in fact something that we're here for and, and one of our purposes, and and, and and yet we don't do it. Um, instead, we, we go ever more quickly um, in the opposite direction. Most environmentalists say that we should, if we curb it at all, it'll be because of some great fear. And I think that, as I say, there's plenty to be afraid of and scared of. Um, And I can tell ghost stories all night here if anyone wants to sit around. Um, um, But what I was trying to do, I think, when I, the book, instead, was conjure up more a sense of sadness um, about what we're doing to the planet. And from that, try to rekindle some of the sense of real, deep affection that we need in order to do these things, in order to learn to drive a lot less and to live a lot more simply and to consume a lot less um, and to have smaller families and other things that are intrinsically difficult for us to do. Um, One of the... I'm, I'm reluctant to use the word, you know, love and say we need to because it's a kind of, no offense, there's a kind of... You know, a sort of, sort of Californian vision of, you know, <laughs> of, of loving the, you know, the sort of, and you write about it, in fact, in the new book, when you say we need to do a lot more than sort of be in harmony with all of Gaia, or or feel our connection with nature, or something. That that in and of itself is not enough. This love has to be expressed in a very um, in very particular ways, and in very particular places. And aside from our, I think when, when people hear, say Gary, talk about um, his experience um, in the Central Valley, or, or if I talk about the need to save the Adirondacks, um, which is great and dire, um, if people live, as most Americans do, um, in cities or, or, or sort of ex-urban and suburban areas, there's kind of a sense that, that that these sort of things don't apply so much because maybe where um, you live is already kind of um, irredeemably altered by man. Well, that's not always true, and there's a lot that can be done in any place, but it's also true that the way that we live has impacts in very specific places. I'll just give one example. New York City gets... Um, buys New York State, and, and hence New York City, buys a great deal of its power um, from Hydro-Quebec, which is the enormous provincial utility in Quebec. To supply this power, um, Hydro-Quebec is building a series of enormous dams in northern Quebec, flooding, you know, flooding areas that are measured in sort of units of European countries. We're going to flood... Italy, is Switzerland, and an area the size of Italy and Switzerland combined or what you know do this, um, and and this is sold to us on the grounds that it's ecological, you know, because it doesn't produce greenhouse gases. You're not consuming fossil fuel, um, but what you are doing is wiping out not only um, one of the last places on this continent where native peoples live in some kind of reasonable balance with their surroundings, but you're also wiping out. Incredibly important areas for for the last one of the two largest caribou herds left. The other caribou herd were busily destroying its habitat by drilling for oil, which we're, the president wants us to do in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Um, um, I guess what I'm saying is that one needs to one needs to fight. To use a an unfortunate um, but perhaps timely metaphor, one needs to fight this battle both on the um, ground and in the air. And it's not enough to, to you know save the atmosphere um, at the cost of of destroying the surface of the planet, um, or like or vice versa. And I guess I'd just end here by saying that I think that there's an enormous enormous urgency to these questions. Um, that they're more urgent than any other questions that we face because they're so final and so irrevocable. Um, and that I think that great, great um, attention, energy, and, and sacrifice are demanded of us who think about these things and know about them. Um and it's not necessarily a pleasant burden of knowledge to carry. Um, in fact, it's not at all a pleasant burden of knowledge, especially if you love the outdoors. The sanest and and you know most well-adjusted environmentalists are the ones who really do it for, for I think, re- who sort of have spent their lives in cities and are doing it because they just really believe that efficiency is better than waste or whatever and who have a... Um, have a different, it's incredibly painful to love particular areas and particular places and see them being destroyed. Um, But one thing, one way that this kind of environmentalism, the kind that we need, the way that it's been marginalized um, in this society in favor of things that are useful but not particularly... um, but not in the long run important, not all important, things like recycling or whatever, in which we focus immense amounts of attention and energy. The way that other concerns have been marginalized is by people saying that they're the work of of radical um, environmentalists. And people refer to Gary Snyder and to um, some of the Deep ecologists that he's been associated with from time to time as as radicals. Um, I've um, had um, call me radical, Um, and I guess I think that that's the point um, at which one needs to, um, you know, stand angrily up and 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 say no. I mean, what's radical? What's radical is not what we're talking about. What's radical is saying, you know, let's double the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere and see what happens, you know, which is what the president has said. I mean, what's radical is to say we have 5 billion people on this planet now. Let's see what happens if we have 10 billion people on this planet, which is what we're talking about in in 40 years. Um, what's radical is saying that when you were born, there were perhaps Thirty million species on this planet, and when you die, there may be five million species um, on this planet. Um, that's radical, and I think what we desperately need um, is a is a great um, rising up of um, of real fire breathing moderates um, um, who will who will make some sort of last-ditch efforts um, to, to protect and preserve and sustain some of the things that were here when we got here and that won't be here when we leave if things go on as they're going on. Thank you.
0: Fire breathing moderates. Well, it may happen yet. The <laughs> moderate the moderates as the vanguard, the last, the last turn of the dialectic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bill, I wanted to ask you a question yes. that that you very likely can answer. In your book *End of Nature*, uh, you described in considerable detail the scientific evidence uh, about global warming hmm. and the likelihood of the irreversibility of that or relative irre- irreversibility of that could you bring us up to date with uh, what's the current uh, scientific consensus on uh, on this stuff and is it still happening
1: yeah well as I say um, as I say one that you know there's still we still have a very imperfect understanding of how climate climatic systems work but um, We do, I mean, there's no question that there is something called the greenhouse effect. That is, if you put more CO2 in the atmosphere, you tend to trap more heat. We know this because Mars has no CO2 and it's very cold. Venus has a great deal of CO2 and it's 800 degrees there all the time. Um, The question is, the questions are all about thresholds um, and how much you need to put in and over what term it will have its impact, and there have been those who say, well, look, if you put more CO2 in the atmosphere, it'll warm things up a little bit. This will put more water vapor in the atmosphere, which will produce more clouds, which will tend to have a cooling effect, canceling out the warming, things like that. We still don't know for sure the answers to all those questions, but they seem to become um, clearer all the time. Um, there's an emerging consensus. The, the United Nations convened an international panel on climate change that met for a couple of years and released its results last fall, and they were right in line with what had been the consensus before, four or five degree Fahrenheit global warming by the middle of the next century. Um, and as I say, the circumstantial evidence grows, not only is it, if we had a run of, of quite warm years, um, of the warmest years that we know about, um, but we also are beginning to see sort of secondary effects. For instance, coral reefs, which are one of the really wonderful ecosystems on the planet um, and one of the most genetically diverse, coral reefs are disappearing um, at a rate of about 5% a year around the globe over the last few years. You don't need to be a mathematician to figure out that it doesn't take very long at 5%, of a, year, 5% a year to get rid of most or all of the coral reefs. Apparently, they're dying um, because of, of increased water temperature, which bleaches coral, um, and the most likely suspect for, for what's causing this increased water temperature is, is some kind of global warming. We know that sea level is rising slightly, um, has risen, you know, has risen, rises a measurable amount each year during the 1980s. This is significant because even without polar melting or things, warmer water takes up more space than, than colder water, so that's another good indication. Of course, the problem is that if we wait, uh, you know, until we're absolutely sure what's going on and absolutely sure what its effects are going to be, and these effects that I've talked about, the sort of four or five degree increase in temperature, those aren't sort of worst-case scenarios. Those are middle-case scenarios, so it could be worse than that. in any significant way the output of carbon dioxide is really a staggering one and will take absolutely unprecedented and almost unenvisionable global cooperation. Um, and 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 that's what, for me, is so... I mean, it seems to me that if we had time to think about all these things, that we would, you know, with the with the help of... Writers like you, among others, we would at some point come to our senses. What I worry about, I guess, what my my fear and my sense is, is that we're going to come to our senses about ten years too late. You know, ten years past the point when it would really have made a difference. I want to. R- I want to ask you a question. Sure. I, um, I want you to talk about something that mm. the idea from your book that 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 made. That struck me the the, the very most, um, and that was the idea that that um, Americans need to become, all of us need to become Native Americans, um, um, which I thought was a remarkably interesting way of putting something that it that seems important to me.
0: Well, what I mean there, of course, is. Um Most of us are Native Americans. We're born here. This is our native land. Uh, but we don't call ourselves Native Americans. Well, there's a good reason for that. Uh, there is a, an ethnic group that um, goes by that name. But metaphorically, uh, we could be Native Americans in the sense that we would take it on to really acknowledge to ourselves, to understand what it fully meant to have been born in the Western Hemisphere. That, in other words, that's just a way of saying uh, an enormous number of Euro-Americans and Asian-Americans that I know, uh, and very likely African-Americans too, are uh, carrying um, a certain sense within themselves that they're not here, that part of them is elsewhere, that this is not their land, that they are in some sense, they have an, uh, an attachment, uh, sentimental, uh, cultural, historical, that keeps them from fully engaging with where they are on this continent. And so what I say, what I like to say is you have to be born again. <laughs> you have to be born again in your heart as a, in, in, in the sense of, Oh, I was born here. This is where I am. I'm not a European. I'm not an Asian or an African. I'm a native of Turtle Island. I don't even like the word America. Turtle Island is the correct name for this continent, at least provisionally speaking, for the time being, because that, <laughs> it's a good it's a good provisional name for a few centuries until it all gets settled out. So that's a way of saying that... Um, uh, It's high time we move past our sense of our our ambivalence about being here, our sense of being newcomers, our sense of being visitors, and take on what the implications of being native are. Uh, And that might lead to what Bill was saying, a little more love, uh, a little less of of the frontier, use it up, throw it away, and move on mentality, which is now expressed in our ideas about finding human destiny in outer space. Uh, it's just a, a continuation of the notion of uh, uh, use, uh, using things and then finding new resources elsewhere. Part of what we are about to enter into is, is finally accepting an age of limits and to enter into a practice and psychology of sustainability, to be proud of needing no more than what we have, to take aesthetic uh, and... Uh, spiritual uh, pleasure in uh, working within what the ecosystem provides, what solar energy and its forces provide, uh, as a pleasure, uh, as an obligation of uh, citizenship in the Western Hemisphere on Turtle Island. Now, that, of course, doesn't mean that you can't study Europe and say, oh, yes, interesting history, um, or even go visit there. I went to visit Europe. uh, I spent almost all of my uh, younger years whenever I traveled in Asia, China and Japan and so forth. But a few years ago, I did go to Europe. (laughs) I had the funniest take. I went to Sweden. I said, gee, these people look just like
2: us.
0: (laughs) Something I didn't feel exactly in Japan. So I I acknowledge there's a connection there. (laughs) Uh, So that's what I mean by that. It's a a poetic uh, and symbolic way of saying if you want to take it on, you can live here. And I'll tell you this, with my Native American friends, if you take it on, they'll let you be a Native American. Because ultimately, that's what it is. It's not a matter of cultural origins or racial origins. It's a matter of living here in the right way. That's what makes a Native American. Amen. Yeah. Uh, curious question. We shouldn't go on with it for too long, but let me say this. Suppose global warming was not being caused by human impact, but it just turned out that we were coming finally out of the current ice age and it was time to go back to planetary normal temperatures because my understanding is that planetary normal is a condition in which uh, the ice caps melt at the poles in the summertime and beech trees are found all the way to the Arctic Sea. Uh, and that the overall temperatures are six or eight degrees warmer than they are now, and that's the way it was for a couple hundred million years. And then we fell into this ice age, and so if we were coming out of the ice age, and we were going back to planetary normal, and everything was going to warm up by that much, would that be a disaster?
1: No, um, it seems to me. Uh-huh. But let me say a couple of things about that. First thing is that I mean the idea of that that there's a planetary normal, I think, is probably not correct I mean um planet has changed a lot over time um you know um um, but at the moment we're I mean at the moment we're we're in fact probably warmer than normal for the last several million years I mean ice ages tend to last a lot longer than than the interglacial periods like the ones we're in now and we should probably be slowly slowly subsiding back into an ice age um um that doesn't seem to me a disaster. In part, it's not the same kind of physical disaster because it happens much more slowly. I mean, the difference one of the differences we're talking about here is that we're changing the climate at a rate, by various estimates, 10 to 60 times faster than it's changed before. Um, this is an enormous problem because evolution which can and adaptation, which can happen fairly fast, can't happen that fast. Um, and and so trees and forests don't have time to retreat and expand and whatever um, they just die off. But the second, for me, um, there's something. And this may this may I don't know if this is some, you know, residue of Christian guilt or or whatever. But for me, there's something truly um, appalling about the idea that the only creatures born with reason um have we, u- think. we think the only <laughs> ones we know about that's right have used that have used that reason um to destroy um habitat uh, and conditions for unbelievable numbers of other species um, and and as long as we're here um It seems to me that our one of our great duties is to control ourselves um, to not to not damage <laughs> any more than we have to absolutely have to in the course of our lives. And in fact to and maybe this is a good place to stop it and sort of start talking about writing, whatever people want to talk about, but in fact that the that the highest, use of our reason um would be to bear witness to the uh, you know just unutterable beauty that there is around us um and that this is somehow what it to me means to be fully human um and that we haven't yet that that it may turn out that, that you know human intelligence is a maladaptation or, or that you know we're not compatible with the planet, or whatever. But I think we haven't yet given it a fair shot, and I'd much prefer that um, that we did. <laughs> Something like that. What do you think we should do? Maybe we sh- people might have questions. Sure. Let's open it up to the audience. Puck abuse. Tell us criticism. who you're addressing it to if you
0: uh, if you want to address it to somebody. You point. Go ahead. Uh, I've been asked to repeat the questions, uh, so in the future, I hope you'll try to make your questions <laughs> concise Repeatable, so yes. I can remember them. <laughs> um, so the question uh, is first about the question about global cooperation, secondly, uh, how do we see the third world uh, in the light of these questions and in uh, the light of the role that the U- United States plays as a developed nation economically in interaction with the third world? And uh, the third question was uh, something to do with the Roman Catholic Church and its policies on contraception. You want to go ahead with No, you go there? first. Was <laughs> 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 oh, there one more? Well, oh, preaching to the converted. Well, oh, that's an easy one to answer. <laughs> uh, I'll preach to whoever comes to listen to me.
1: <laughs> oh, and I'll, and I'll, before Terry gets into the meat of this, <laughs> I will expand on that to say that it's true that one tends to preach to the converted, but that's not an altogether empty exercise when one the point of this preaching mm-hmm. is that now the converted are supposed to go and do something with the mm-hmm. preaching and go and convert some other people and bring them back to hear somebody else talk. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean you know um, um, I mean I, I'm not a good revival preacher. Um, but if I was, you know, I would have you out um, saving the souls of your of your friends and neighbors and relatives.
0: Yeah, I mean, and in any talk like this, uh, one hopes to slip in a few uh, uh, bits of practical information up, uh, with which those who wish, uh, on which those who wish can act. Um, uh, and as as I always try to point out, uh, action starts locally, uh, starts within your own watershed. Uh, starts with issues that are on your front doorstep. Um, We are morally obliged, maybe not to save the whole planet, but by golly, if something turns up in your front yard, that is something you want to look at, like, say, the condition of the water in the Hudson River Uh, or uh, air pollution being created locally. Uh, And so there are always places and ways to engage if you are not afraid to get your hands and mind dirty by learning bureaucratic language and reading boring texts full of numbers so that you can make an intelligent presentation at a meeting. That is what environmentalism is all about. Get out there and do that. Go to meetings. That's why I sometimes say maybe Buddhists will take over the world. Because they're the only ones who, who, by virtue of doing meditation, which is so boring, um, learn the habits of mind that enable them to go to long meetings. (laughs) <laughs> That's a funny angle, um, and believe me, I do take on hostile audiences because I, I carry uh, I carry these discussions into um, uh, Forest Service and uh, Sacramento Valley growers conferences and and the Reno miners and that kind of thing. Um, about the Third World, we. are destroying their environments by our long-range, multinational interactions, corporations, extracting their resources uh, and selling them our poisons. But this is being done with the consent uh, of the governments in the Third World. Uh, The Third World nations are run by small elites that are basically in league with whatever uh, the developed nations are in the process of doing. Um, I'm not an expert on these things, but uh, people tell me that agricultural sustainability, uh, community integrity, uh, food growing capacities are destroyed by these interactions with the developed world. Uh, And that the third world's poverty is caused to a great extent on certain levels, its poverty is caused by getting in, involved with uh, uh, this kind of economics. I'm not sure what we can do about that. But one thing we certainly uh, can do is um, not take it for granted that it is a good thing for them to have the economic desire to be as we are. Uh, and it sends a message out, believe me, uh, that, that there are some people in the developed world Uh, who choose to live in other ways and who present a different model. Uh, So there is some power in that. Does that answer some of your question? I think population is a serious question. I think that the right and the left alike is terribly irresponsible if it tries to write it off. You know, there there is a, a, a leftist, uh, Marxist angle that says population is not a real question, as much as there are reasons from the right, uh, arguments from the right that say uh, this this is not the way it should be addressed. And in fact, this is a disagreement I have with my friend Wendell Berry, uh, who at this point still seems to think that population is something that we do not have the moral or spiritual capacity to address. You know, he thinks we should defer thinking about it. Uh, yeah, I think it's absolutely critical, along with a lot of other things. Uh, and in an essay I wrote some years ago, Four Changes, I laid out a whole lot of ideas about how we might work on it.
1: I would I would just add a couple of things to what Gary said. The first one about the third world I mean and about first of all about global cooperation, which as I say is essential and it has to happen no longer because it's the right thing to do or it's good for us to try to share our bounty with with others less um, fortunate than ourselves or whatever we failed to do for a very long time. We now need to do it because it's our neck um, too. Um, and if China decides to develop the way that we have developed and uses its, it's half of the world's coal reserves in order to do that, then they can double the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere by themselves. This gives us a, a compelling reason to share both some of our bounty and, and all of our alternative um, energy technology that we've failed to make use of, with them immediately, um, so that they can develop, you know, dignified lives that don't don't involve environmental destruction. But I think what Gary said is absolutely key. I think tend to think that while it's true that multinational corporations and things have done terrible and irresponsible things in terms of, you know cutting down the rainforest for cattle pasture, and so on and so forth. I think that these tend to be the more controllable excesses, and I think that we're beginning to get a handle on them, and I think it's within our capabilities to do that. I think what's so much more difficult is to is to slow down um, um, our, our incredibly successful efforts to paint our way of life as desirable for everyone. Um... It's not, in the end, it's going to be people's desires to own cars like Americans and, you know, eat food that they haven't produced the way that Americans do and, in general, live without work, physical labor the way that Americans do, that is going to do and is doing um, more damage than anything else. And the only credible way in which we can begin to make that case to the rest of the world is if we can show um, that we're willing to kick some of those addictions ourselves. As to the second question, which I think is very important, um, uh, population, and particularly of of kind of religious conceptions that, that have led to this problem, I would say a couple of things. The first one is that the churches, all churches, and it's not just the Catholic church, although they have particular strong feelings about controlling things about population need to wake up very quickly to the fact of what if if one believes in a created world um then the fact that we're destroying that world um um quickly should be a a a source of, of great concern um that we're destroying a world that that some deity is created, and I think perhaps that the religious community may begin to wake up to that. You know, the 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 commandment um, that on the first page of Genesis that we're to, um, you know, um, um, multiply and 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 fill the earth. Well, that's the one commandment in the entire. Bible that one could say we have achieved with some, you know, (laughs) remarkable degree of success. Um, And I think that perhaps people are beginning to realize that in fact we have filled the earth and now perhaps it's time to start working on the other um, commandments. And I think that and some of the work that I'm doing, um, I think that in many ways that the churches and, and religious communities and faith communities around the world are some of the best bets that we have for environmental progress because they're the only communities that, in especially in this society, that can recognize have the potential to recognize some goal, some something other than economic advancement, um, as as a good that elevates sacrifice and, and award it some kind of of, of status, um, that that gather together communities of people for some reason other than 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 selfish ends, and so I think it's a Absolutely central importance that they be organized, and that people not um, um, see them as I think that many people in the environmental community and in the left in general have sort of seen them as as, as um, un, unbreachable obstacles um, um, to progress
0: You had your hand up, yeah.
1: it's a great issue. Um, um, part of the reason that it's an issue is that people who live in the Adirondacks, which is, as you say, I mean, people think of, you know, parts of New York City as desperately poor, and they are. The poorest, the three poorest counties in New York State are in the Adirondacks. I live in one of them. Um, um, one of the reasons that there's been such resistance in the Adirondacks in recent years to, to, to preserving... More of the Adirondacks is because all political power and decision making and whatever has always been uh, lifted from that community, and and things have been imposed on it from the outside, um, and 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 imposed often in in arrogant fashion. Um, I think that this is one of the great difficulties that that one faces and i we face it in the adirondacks and 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 i think to some degree it's faced in the pacific northwest and whatever um, if you have if if you say what we want is sort of bioregional control of what we have you may find that a lot of the people in the bioregion want to cut it all down and sell it so that they can live like you know uh, people in westchester county um, i guess that to the degree that we're a, <laughs> you know, a sort of, a, a kind of third world, th- this sort of New York State equivalent of the third world. Um, the answer that I gave before goes to some one thing that we try to do is is is, uh, and and it needs to be done is to remind people that they have a great deal about their way of life, of which people who live there that are very proud of that way of life, if they stop to think about it, which they which is more important. Um, than the kind of immediate cash benefits one can get. Um, But what we need um, is some kind of responsible, um, small-scale development that makes the Adirondacks um, and other areas like it into places that can support themselves without without so much outside input. We need, again, small-scale agriculture in the Adirondacks. We need, again, small-scale cottage kind of industry um, in the Adirondacks. We need it because if we don't get it, the best that we're going to have is um, demeaning jobs in the tourist service industry, which is no way to build either pride in, in yourself or pride in your place. And I would just add, since it came up, um, that if any of you wanted one little project to work on, um, you know, one thing within our state that's you know, the Adirondacks. I don't. May, many of you may not really know about the Adirondacks, but the Adirondacks are the last great wilderness in the eastern United States. They've been preserved almost by accident in New York for a hundred years. Um, they're in a stage where they're about to be developed much more extensively than they are now, not for the benefit of the people who live there, but for the benefit of real estate interests and development interests. Um, um, and the reason the biggest reason that they're about to be developed that way is because the state government, and in particular the governor, has done very little, if anything, um, to deal with this. Um, Having been preserved for a very long time by Republican, often by Republican governors and and regressive administrations, the theoretically progressive um, administration now in power in this state is standing by idly while enormous chunks of the Adirondacks um, are sold off and 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 potentially developed um, and of you know there's an enormous number of issues in this state right now because of the budget problems that we're in but as I say this is a particular set of issues that is irrevocable if we don't um, if we don't <laughs> Fight it now. The problem with being an environmentalist, that maybe the biggest problem, is there's no such thing as a, you know, permanent victory. Um, you never win anything for, you know, longer than a year or two because someone else comes back to to try to take it away again. But every loss is, or almost every loss, is a permanent loss. And we're facing enormous permanent losses in the Adirondacks that will undo not only the environment of the Adirondacks but the culture um, that's grown up there.
0: I'd like to add something to that about uh, local economics, uh, which is a question that we have had for years where I am too, and, and all over the West, of course. Um, I'm a bioregionalist, uh, which means that I think of my community as a whole when I do this work. Uh, that is to say, the human community and the non-human community as one community. And if I say... I should have cleared this up a little bit, I suppose. When I said, my work is to save habitat. I don't just mean habitat for animals and trees. I mean habitat for human beings, too. So this is where I part ways with some um, conservationists. Uh, I favor primary production. Wherever possible, I'll stand on the side uh, of local primary productive activities which means I am not 100% against logging by any means. The sophisticated and more demanding angle is to figure out what good logging is and how much and where one can do it. Really sophisticated, workable, sustainable, uh, appropriate scale logging practices. Ditto for mining, ditto for grazing, ditto for sheep. These are all questions where I live and up and down the coast. And we uh, figured out finally, it took us a while, um, that, you know, if you don't, if you side against the ranchers and the loggers and the old time families uh, simply because they shoot a bear once in a while when they shouldn't and run too many sheep, uh, you're losing some of your best possible allies because they want to keep that river valley or that mountain uh, intact also. And what you get as an alternative is development. You lose your primary base of production with a local community, whatever it is, and uh, it's gentrification and development that comes in next. Now, I, I don't, you know, there's nothing against those folks either, but let's save habitat for what's there. So uh, simple preservation is, uh, is not of itself an answer. It's really a very complex interweaving of possibilities in which the sense of carrying capacity, of limits, and of really careful economic projections is uh, critical. And uh, in spite of the press uh, that you might hear about, loggers versus environmentalists on the West Coast last summer, uh, the fact of the matter is it's big timber companies. There's three players. There's big timber companies, there's the environmentalists, and there's the small loggers. Small loggers are caught in the middle, and they see one day they think the environmentalists are threatening them they, the next day they realize that their jobs are being sold down the river by the big timber companies. They are potentially allies of anybody who comes in as an environmentalist who also says i 'm in favor of sustainability, and I believe that you should be able to keep your job
1: yeah but as long as people mm-hmm. as long as people think that that what the goal of living in this country is is to become enormously rich um or even you know. Relatively rich to live like mm-hmm. people live in Westchester or on the Upper East Side or whatever else. As long as that, th- I don't know of there are very few ecosystems in the world that can support any sizable number of human beings living that kind of wasteful and stupid lifestyle um, in um, over any long period of time. Um, so that's, I mean. I'm afraid that, I mean, that's what, and, and, and the seductive power of that kind of lifestyle as it's shown every night on television and everything else is is what makes this such, such a <laughs> foreboding task to me. Well, let's see. How about you? I would like to go back to the question of the responsibility of writers. Um, both of you I know are mm-hmm. right?
0: How do we incorporate this uh, world of concern into our writings, and what, you know, how can we hope to approach the complexity of the information that sometimes call for? Well, Bill, you've done a good job mastering a lot of that information.
1: Well, part of it is, I mean, part of it is happily that at least in dealing with the environment, a lot of the science Mm -hmm. is not unbelievably difficult, you know. I mean, if you want to talk mm-hmm. about global environmental issues, only—I mean you only have to know a few things. Um, if You want to talk about the greenhouse effect, right? All you have to know, I mean, the science is not difficult particularly. I mean, it's difficult to do. It's difficult to have figured it out in the first place and to run the computer models. But if you know that carbon dioxide traps heat, that burning fossil fuels releases vast amounts of carbon dioxide and that more heat will raise the sea level... You know, dry up the interiors of continents, move vegetation, vegetation zones, things like that. Then you can. I mean, it's not. It's not. It's not. It's not like trying to understand. You know, the Big Bang theory, or or some incredibly esoteric and difficult part of. And because among other things, I mean, most of it, an awful lot of it, is intuitive understanding that people have traditionally had. You know, our problem is that, that since we've lived so out of contact with the natural world, ideas that should be and have been absolutely obvious to people throughout history, like that there are limits to how much you can do, um, and, the, and nature sets those limits, um, things that any farmer who ever lived um, or any person who hunted for a living or something, ever, whoever lived, understood intuitively, we have to make an effort to understand. But not, I think, an impossible... Um, effort to understand those scientific issues they're not they're not so complicated that we can't I think get at them
0: I have a few guidelines for would be investigative environmental poetic or prosodic activists one don't be intimidated by uh, unfamiliar information you're smarter than you think you are you can do it Two, uh, understand it so thoroughly that you become intimate with it. Get intimate with it. And then three, say it back, write it back in your own language. Translate it into your own language and you say it back. Don't, re- don't repeat the technical vocabulary that you learned it in. And fourth, make it into a story. Uh, that, that'll work. Actually, you can sell that to the New Yorker.
1: And don't, and don't... <laughs> And don't be afraid to talk to scientists about these things, because they're—you know—scientists are like a sort of a, a sort of small sect that has this sort of this sort of rule that they've imposed on themselves that they're not really allowed to talk with outsiders very much and they have to say things to each other in a very complicated language, but they're incredibly frustrated by the disciplines of this sect. And they would, many of them, be very mm-hmm. happy to to evade these disciplines by talking to you so that you can explain things to the rest of the world. Because people who know secrets and understand that these secrets are of vast importance, but don't themselves have the language or the m- mechanism expressing those secrets to anyone become very frustrated.
0: I found scientists, uh, real specialists, to be just extraordinarily open and cooperative. If you come to them just saying, I don't understand this, I'm ignorant, help me out, I'd like to know something about this, they're really happy to say it to you. Yeah, I think you were that.
2: psychological question, um, and I'm asking it to both of you. What do you think about those juxtapositions, number one? And number two, do you think that you'll do any writing about that?
0: Well, I think we all feel deep inside ourselves, uh, or a lot of us do at any rate, that the events of this war, as it has worked out for the American psyche, have given us an unseemly confidence and um, uh, have seemed to loosed a permission in the American psyche, both to feel bellicose and uh, excessively proud, and also a released uh, and uh, what we would think of as a some what I would think of as a really somewhat old fashioned and, and, and should be outmoded by now, Expansiveness, expansionist, I don't mean expanse, expansionistic uh, uh, habit of mind that is going to be, you know, as you say, it's going to be applied to the environment now. Uh, we're going to kick butt up in the Arctic Wildlife Refuge next, you know. <laughs> I mean, that's the attitude that you can feel in the air now. Once again, it's yeah. yes. Yeah, yes. And you and in America. Yeah, and Bush's State of the Union address and his uh, so called uh, energy policy are absolute steps backward. Uh, the least we can do for starters is point that out. You know, just to start pointing that out right now, that that something unhealthy has been just uh, completely apart from the rights and wrongs and the complexities of the war in the Persian Gulf. The effect of that uh, is unseemly and scary.
1: Yes, it seems to me that at this point, probably it's, it's counterproductive to spend a lot of time um, attacking Americans for having fought in the Persian Gulf and whatever, among other things, uh, Saddam Hussein, by being the son of a bitch that he was, made it, you know, very, very difficult to make any argument along this lines that, that, that stuck. And I must say, uh, even as one who deals daily with the you know, rights and thinks daily about the. The um, carelessness with which human beings treat the world—there was something almost uniquely appalling about someone who would, who would just open up, um, you know, oil wa- oil outlets into the water and set things on fire that'll take ten years to put out and whatever. But the <laughs> and and you saw—I mean—and and the thing to build on. Is how appalled people were by those actions, because we all could see that this was disgusting, and 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 behavior even outside the bounds of sort of whatever passes for normal during warfare, um, and and to build on that and say, look, this is what we do, you know, every day, day in, day out, just out of carelessness and thoughtlessness, and and greed. You know, if that oil, I mean, it's terrible that all that oil has been flared off into the air in Kuwaiti oil wells, but, and it was terrible that, you know, that the, the Exxon let, you know, drunks drive its tankers and they they run aground in Alaska, but if that oil from Kuwait or that oil from the Exxon Valdez had gotten to the refinery where it was supposed to go and been made into gasoline and put into people's cars like it was supposed to, it would have had precisely, it would have had, you know, just the same effect on the carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere as if you just burned it all off on top of an oil well. I wrote something about that in the, in the Times, at the time of the Valdez, you know, here somehow we can see that this is an environmental tragedy, but in fact it's, you know, we daily have an invisible environmental tragedy. Um, and and. And I think we need to keep saying that kind of thing. The final thing I would say about th- and the really <laughs> the really depressing in some ways, uh, one of the most depressing outcomes of the war in the Persian Gulf is that the price of oil is going to go down again. Um, and everything that we've talked about, every change in human behavior that we've talked about tonight becomes 10% more difficult each time the price of, uh, of a barrel of oil drops a dollar. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would say that that's probably as good a rule of thumb as you could make. And then if you had $10 a barrel oil, which is completely a possibility now, then there's no chance at all that we'll ever reform anything. I, that's my sense.
2: shadow projection in there. That's what I was trying to get at. He doesn't value life as much as I do, so therefore it's easier for me to kill him. A lot of that went on in this war, and we we have to
0: grapple with those complexities.
1: I agree. But I think
0: it will build a stronger movement <clears> than <throat> we do, because we'll be drawing
2: on a common fund of human. Beings. I
1: agree. I, all I was trying to say is, I think that at this point, it's, you know, now that it's over and done with um, you know whether or not we should have fought the war in the Persian Gulf is, is, is probably not it's probably not going to, to win an enormous amount of um, either converts or, or I mean it's probably not the best use of, of energy but I agree very much that, that this grows out of a out of the same sicknesses that we're talking about here true true. Helen.
3: in terms of, let's say you go to the legislature of this particular state, and on the one hand you have the Adirondas, and on the other hand you have the city and the problems of homelessness and AIDS, and you've got two very different kinds of timing. Now, in theory, there's, th- in theory, there's no contradiction.
0: Okay, the question is, uh, to rephrase it, how are we going to balance our, to rephrase it, yeah, To how are we going to balance our sense of, and, and perhaps put our priorities, and I guess this means us as environmentalists, uh, into uh, seeing the threats or dangers in the short run to human health and welfare and lives, and balance that with longer range, perhaps, issues that may be ultimately on a deep planetary level, even more significant, uh, but are uh, apparently, for the time being, slightly more remote. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, And also in the environmental movement, from the same time, simultaneously. And uh, having my friends in the left be kind of bemused and um, concerned that I would show uh, an interest in trees and animals, as well as uh, workers... And then on the other hand, having my colleagues uh, out in some of the much straighter appearing in those days, conservation groups, wonder, uh, you know, what the hell I was doing talking uh, radical uh, political language as well. Um, It is a question I have never entirely resolved. I don't think there is a resolution to it. Uh, I think that we, uh, realistically speaking, we all have to choose the territories of our political action and um, keep, a, keep ourselves informed on the larger pictures, but uh, make ourselves good at doing one or two things. Um, it occurred to me 15 or 20 years ago that at that time there were far fewer people, far fewer educated white Americans, shall we say, at that time who were conf- who were deeply concerned about the fate of the non-human. Uh, there were plenty of people who had all kinds of feelings and thoughts about every conceivable human situation. Uh, and for the most part, that is still true, although it may be changing, that that uh, human issues, social justice and economic issues, for human beings dominate their consciousness. And so I've taken it as my role to be, speak for the non-human and to speak to the conscience for an expansion of compassion and concern that will ultimately, in a non-dualistic way, include, both, include all of these constituencies as one community and not to let them be divided into a ter- different territories of interest. What's healthy for human beings is healthy for the rest of nature and vice versa. Uh, And as a rule of thumb, uh, we all, morally speaking, take on the issue that turns up on our doorstep. If I lived uh, in New York City and I had homeless people on my doorstep, that would be my issue. Uh, I live in a different part of the world and I have
1: something else on my doorstep. I can pick up right there and say that when I lived in New York City, which I did for a long time, the thing that I spent most of my time both writing and, and working on was, as it turns out, homelessness. Um, um, and I sort of keep that as a, that experience and the experience of living in, for long periods in shelters and things as a kind of sort of reality check in my mind when I'm dealing with other issues. And it seems to me precisely the same attitudes of mind and casts of mind that create the sort of problems we see in the city, create problems. I mean, the reason, the single overwhelming reason that there are so many homeless people in this city is because real estate developers with the collusion of the Koch administration and those that came before them passed a series of changes in the tax code that made it immensely profitable to convert every you know, SRO hotel in this city into a condominium. Um, We lost 100,000 SRO hotel rooms in a decade, and there were about 100,000 homeless people or something at the end of that time. It wasn't a one-to-one, you know, sort of linear relationship, but it was remarkably close. Um, Those are, you know, those same attitudes about what human beings should do with their lives drive you know that they should get rich and that they should get rich at the expense of others, and not worry about how it is that they um, acquire more. Um, those are precisely the same cast of mind, although not always in quite as obvious a venal way that drive the destruction of the environment um, and and so, on a large sense that i mean that 's what I work on, but on a sort of year to year sense when you say, "Well, look, what is the?" Legislature are going to spend money on this year. I guess uh, um, what I think is that, as much as Gary said, um, one has to kind of uh, there's there there are, one needs to speak out for where one is at 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 the moment and the community that one represents. And at the very least, it's it's obligatory on everyone to realize that that. Environmental concerns have great if one's, if one was concerned only about human beings and and or poor people or workers or whatever and what was going to happen to them in the future, if one had absolutely no shred of feeling for any other species on this planet, it would still be incumbent upon one to realize just in practical terms that the greatest threat, not only over the next millennium, but over the next 50 or 60 years, faced by poor people around the world, by workers, by you know, very sort, are the unbelievably large changes and damage to the physical systems of this planet that are coming about. Um, So I would say that these things converge in both those In both those ways, um, and that, and that, they provide plenty of room for um, common ground and for common work. um, But that I, for one, feel no, um, don't feel as if I'm turning my back um, on the one when I spend time and energy on the other good as I can do.
0: Thank you very Thank much.
1: You. Thank you. Thank you.